Volume Two, Chapter Twentieth of the Antiquary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Antiquary by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Twentieth. So while the goose, of whom the fable told, incumbent, brooded o'er her eggs of gold, with hand outstretched, impatient to destroy, stole on her secret nest the cruel boy whose grip rapacious changed her splendid dream for wings vain fluttering and for dying scream the loves of the seaweeds from the time that sir arthur warder had become possessor of the treasure found in mesticott's grave he had been in a state of mind more resembling ecstasy than sober sense indeed at one time his daughter had become seriously apprehensive for his intellect for as he had no doubt that he had the secret of possessing himself of wealth to an unbounded extent his language and carriage were those of a man who had acquired the philosopher's stone he talked of buying contiguous estates that would have led him from one side of the island to the other as if he were determined to brook no neighbour save the sea he corresponded with an architect of eminence upon a plan of renovating the castle of his forefathers on a style of extended magnificence that might have rivalled that of windsor and laying out the grounds on a suitable scale troops of liveried menials were already in fancy marshalled in his halls and for what may not unbounded wealth authorize its possessor to aspire to the coronet of a marquis perhaps of a duke was glittering before his imagination his daughter to what matches might she not look forward even an alliance with the blood royal was not beyond the sphere of his hopes his son was already a general and he himself whatever ambition could dream of in its wildest visions in this mood if any one endeavoured to bring sir arthur down to the regions of common life his replies were in the vein of ancient pistol a fight go for the world and worldlings base i speak of africa and golden joys the reader may conceive the amazement of miss wardour when instead of undergoing an investigation concerning the addresses of lovel as she had expected from the long conference of her father with mr oldbuck upon the morning of the fated day when the treasure was discovered the conversation of sir arthur announced an imagination heated with the hopes of possessing the most unbounded wealth. But she was seriously alarmed when Dousterswivel was sent for to the castle, and was closeted with her father, his mishap condoled with, his part taken, and his loss compensated. All the suspicions which she had long entertained respecting this man became strengthened by observing his pains to keep up the golden dreams of her father and to secure for himself under various pretexts as much as possible out of the windfall which had so strangely fallen to sir arthur's share other evil symptoms began to appear following close on each other letters arrived every post which sir arthur as soon as he had looked at the directions flung into the fire without taking the trouble to open them Miss Wardour could not help suspecting that these epistles, the contents of which seemed to be known to her father by a sort of intuition, came from pressing creditors. In the meanwhile, the temporary aid 
which he had received from the treasure, dwindled fast away. By far the greater part had been swallowed up by the necessity of paying the bill of six hundred pounds, which had threatened Sir Arthur with instant distress. Of the rest, some part was given to the adept, some wasted upon extravagances, which seemed to the poor knight fully authorized by his full-blown hopes, and some went to stop for a time, the mouths of such claimants as, being weary of fair promises, had become of opinion with Arpagon, that it was necessary to touch something substantial. At length circumstances announced but too plainly that it was all expended within two or three days after its discovery, and there appeared no prospect of a supply. Sir Arthur, naturally impatient, now taxed Dousterswivel anew with breach of those promises through which he had hoped to convert all his lead into gold. But that worthy gentleman's turn was now served, and as he had grace enough to wish to avoid witnessing the fall of the house which he had undermined, he was at the trouble of bestowing a few learned terms of art upon Sir Arthur, that at least he might not be tormented before his time. He took leave of him, with assurances that he would return to Knockwinnock the next morning, with such information as would not fail to relieve Sir Arthur from all his distresses. For, since I have consulted in such matters, I have never, said Mr. Herman Dousterswivel, approached so near de Arcanum, what you call de great mystery, de Panchestra, de Polycresta. I do know as much of it as Palazzo de Taranta or Basilius, and either I will bring you in two or three days de number three of Mr. Mishtigot, or you shall call me one knave myself, and never look me into face again, no more at all. The adept departed with this assurance, in the firm resolution of making good the latter part of the proposition, and never again appearing before his injured patron. Sir Arthur remained in a doubtful and anxious state of mind, the positive assurances of the philosopher, with the hard words, Pancresta, Basilius, and so forth, produced some effect on his mind. But he had been too often deluded by such jargon, to be absolutely relieved of his doubt, and he retired for the evening into his library, in the fearful state of one who, hanging over a precipice, and without the means of retreat, perceives the stone on which he rests, gradually parting from the rest of the crag, and about to give way with him. The visions of hope decayed, and there increased in proportion that feverish agony of anticipation, with which a man, educated in a sense of consequence, and possessed of opulence, the supporter of an ancient name, and the father of two promising children, foresaw the hour approaching which should deprive him of all the splendor which time had made familiarly necessary to him, and send him forth into the world to struggle with poverty, with rapacity, and with scorn. Under these dire forebodings, his temper, exhausted by the sickness of delayed hope, became peevish and fretful, and his words and actions sometimes expressed a reckless desperation, which alarmed Miss Wardour extremely. We have seen, on a former occasion, that Sir Arthur was a man of passions lively and quick, 
in proportion to the weakness of his character in other respects. He was unused to contradiction, and if he had been hitherto, in general, good-humoured and cheerful, it was probably because the course of his life had afforded no such frequent provocation as to render his irritability habitual. On the third morning after Dousterswivel's departure, the servant, as usual, laid on the breakfast-table the newspaper and letters of the day. Miss Wardour took up the former to avoid the continued ill-humour of her father, who had wrought himself into a violent passion, because the toast was over-round. "'I perceive how it is,' was his concluding speech on this interesting subject. "'My servants, who have had their share of my fortune, begin to think there is little to be made of me in future. But while I am the scoundrel's master, I will be so, and permit no neglect.' no, nor endure a hair's breadth diminution of the respect I am entitled to exact from them. "'I am ready to leave your honour's service this instant,' said the domestic, upon whom the fault had been charged, "'as soon as you order payment of my wages.' Sir Arthur, as if stung by a serpent, thrust his hand into his pocket, and instantly drew out the money which he contained, but which was short of the man's claim." "'What money have you got, Miss Wardour?' he said, in a tone of affected calmness, but which concealed violent agitation. Miss Wardour gave him her purse. He attempted to count the bank-notes which it contained, but could not reckon them. After twice miscounting the sum, he threw the whole to his daughter, and saying, in a stern voice, "'Pay the rascal, and let him leave the house instantly,' he strode out of the room." The mistress and servant stood alike astonished at the agitation and vehemence of his manner. "'I am sure, ma'am, if I had thought I was particularly wrong, I wouldn't have made any answer when Sir Arthur challenged me. I have been long in his service, and he has been a kind master, and you a kind mistress, and I would like ill you should think I had, I would start for a hasty word. I am sure it was very wrong of me to speak about wages to his honour, when maybe he has something to vex him. I nigh thoughts of leaving the family in this way. "'Go downstairs, Robert,' said his mistress. "'Something has happened to fret my father. Go downstairs and let Alec answer the bell.' When the man left the room, Sir Arthur re-entered, as if he had been watching his departure. "'What's the meaning of this?' he said hastily, as he observed the notes lying still on the table. "'Is he not gone?' Am I neither to be obeyed as a master or a father? He's gone to give up his charge to the housekeeper, sir. I thought there was not such instant haste. There is haste, Miss Wardour, answered her father, interrupting her. What I do henceforth in the house of my forefathers must be done speedily, or never. He then sat down and took up with a trembling hand the basin of tea prepared for him, protracting the swallowing of it, as if to delay the necessity of opening the post-letters which lay on the table, and which he eyed from time to time as if they had been a nest of adders ready to start into life and spring upon him. "'You will be happy to hear,' said Miss Wardour, willing to withdraw her father's mind from the gloomy reflections in which he appeared to be plunged. "'You will be happy to hear, sir, that 
Lieutenant Taffril's gun-brig has got safe into Laith Roads. I observed there had been apprehensions for his safety. I am glad we did not hear them until they were contradicted. And what is Taffril and his gun-brig to me? Sir, said Miss Wardour, in astonishment, for Sir Arthur, in his ordinary state of mind, took a fidgety sort of interest in all the gossip of the day and country. I say, he repeated, in a higher and still more impatient key, what do I care who is saved or lost? It's nothing to me, I suppose. I did not know you were busy, Sir Arthur, and thought, as Mr. Tapwell is a brave man, and from our own country, you would be happy to hear. Oh, I am happy, as happy as possible, and to make you happy, too, you shall have some of my good news in return. And he caught up a letter. It does not signify which I open first. They are all to the same tune. He broke the seal hastily, ran the letter over, and then threw it to his daughter. Aye, I could not have lighted more happily. This place is the copestone. Miss Wardour, in silent terror, took up the letter. Read it. Read it aloud, said her father. It cannot be read too often. It will serve to break you in for other good news of the same kind. She began to read with a faltering voice. Dear sir, he dares me to, you see, this impudent drudge of a writer's office, who, a twelvemonth since, was not fit company for my second table. I suppose I shall be dear knight with him by and by. Dear sir, resumed Miss Wardour, but interrupting herself, I see the contents are unpleasant, sir, and will only vex you my reading them aloud. If you will allow me to know my own pleasure, Miss Wardour, I entreat you to go on. I presume, if it were unnecessary, I should not ask you to take the trouble. Having been of late taken into copartnery, continued Miss Wardour, reading the letter, by Mr. Gilbert Greenhorn, son of your late correspondent and man of business, Gernigo Greenhorn, Esquire, writer to the signet, whose business I conducted as Parliament House clerk for many years, which business will in future be carried on under the firm of Greenhorn and Grinderson, which I memorandum for the sake of accuracy in addressing your future letters. And having had of late favours of yours, directed to my aforesaid partner, Gilbert Greenhorn, in consequence of his absence at the Lamberton races, have the honour to reply to your said favours. You see, my friend is methodical, and commences by explaining the causes which have procured me so modest and elegant a correspondent. Go on, I can bear it. And he laughed that bitter laugh, which is perhaps the most fearful expression of mental misery. Trembling to proceed, and yet afraid to disobey, Miss Wardour continued to read. I am for myself and partner sorry we cannot oblige you by looking out for the sums you mention, or applying for a suspension in the case of Goldiebird's bond, which would be more inconsistent, as we have been employed to act as the said Goldiebird's procurators and attorneys in which capacity we have taken out a charge of horning against you, as you must be aware by the schedule left by the messenger, for the sum of four thousand seven hundred and fifty-six pounds, five shilling and six pence, one-fourth of a penny sterling, which, 
with annual rents and expenses effering we presume will be settled during the currency of the charge to prevent further trouble same time i am under the necessity to observe our own account amounting to seven hundred and sixty-nine pounds ten shillings and sixpence is also due and settlement would be agreeable but as we hold your rights title deeds and documents in hypothèque shall have no objection to give reasonable time say till the next money term i am for myself and partner concerned to add that messrs goldiebird's instructions to us are to proceed peremptorie and sina mora of which i have the pleasure to advise you to prevent future mistakes reserving to ourselves otherwise to age as accords i am for self and partner dear sir your obliged humble servant gabriel grinderson for greenhorn and grinderson ungrateful villain said miss wardour why no it's in the usual rule i suppose the blow could not have been perfect if dealt by another hand it's all just as it should be answered the poor baronet his affected composure sorely belied by his quivering lip and rolling eye but here's a postscript i did not notice come finish the epistle i have to add not for self but partner that mr greenhorn will accommodate you by taking your service of plate or the bay horses if sound in wind and limb at a fair appreciation in part payment of your account god confound him said sir arthur losing all command of himself at this condescending proposal his grandfather shod my father's horses and this descendant of a scoundrelly blacksmith proposes to swindle me out of mine but i will write him a proper answer and he sat down and began to write with great vehemence then stopped and read aloud mr gilbert greenhorn in answer to two letters of a late date i received a letter from a person calling himself grinderson and designing himself as your partner when i address any one i do not usually expect to be answered by deputy i think i have been useful to your father and friendly and civil to yourself and therefore am now surprised and yet said he stopping short why should i be surprised at that or anything else or why should i take up my time in writing to such a scoundrel i shan't be always kept in prison i suppose and to break that puppy's bones when i get out shall be my first employment in prison sir said miss wardour faintly i in prison to be sure do you make any question about that why mr what's-his-name's fine letter for self and partner seems to be thrown away on you or else you have got four thousand so many hundred pounds with a due proportion of shillings pence and halfpence to pay that aforesaid demand as he calls it ay sir oh if i had the means but where's my brother why does he not come and so long in scotland he might do something to assist us who reginald i suppose he's gone with mr gilbert greenhorn or some such respectable person to the lamberton races i have expected him this week past but i cannot wonder that my children should neglect me as well as every other person but i should beg your pardon my love who never either neglected or offended me in your life 
and kissing her cheek as she threw her arms around his neck, he experienced that consolation which a parent feels, even in the most distressed state, in the assurance that he possesses the affection of a child. Miss Wardour took the advantage of this revulsion of feeling to endeavour to soothe her father's mind to composure. She reminded him that he had many friends. "'I had many once,' said Sir Arthur, "'but of some I have exhausted their kindness with my frantic projects. Others are unable to assist me. Others are unwilling. It is all over with me. I only hope Reginald will take example by my folly.' "'Should I not send to Monkmarns, sir?' said his daughter. "'To what purpose? He cannot lend me such a sum, and would not if he could, for he knows I am otherwise drowned in debt, and he would only give me scraps of misanthropy and quaint ends of Latin. But he is shrewd and sensible, and was bred to business, and I am sure always loved this family.' "'Yes, I believe he did. It is a fine pass we are come to, when the affection of an old buck is of consequence to a wardour. But when matters come to extremity, as I suppose they presently will, it may be as well to send for him. And now go take your walk, my dear. My mind is more composed than when I had this cursed disclosure to make. You know the worst, and may daily or hourly expect it. Go take your walk. I would willingly be alone for a little while." When Miss Wardour left the apartment, her first occupation was to avail herself of the half-permission granted by her father by dispatching to Monkbarns the messenger, who, as we have already seen, met the antiquary and his nephew on the sea-beach. Little recking, and indeed scarce knowing, where she was wandering, chance directed her into the walk beneath the briery bank, as it was called, a brook which in former days had supplied the castle-moat with water, here descended through a narrow dell, up which Miss Wardour's taste had directed a natural path, which was rendered neat and easy of ascent, without the air of being formally made and preserved. It suited well the character of the little glen, which was overhung with thickets and underwood, chiefly of larch and hazel, intermixed with the usual varieties of the thorn and briar. In this walk, had passed that scene of explanation between Miss Wardour and Lovell, which was overheard by old Eddie Ochiltree. With a heart softened by the distress which opposed her family, Miss Wardour now recalled every word and argument which Lovell had urged in support of his suit, and could not help confessing to herself. It was no small subject of pride to have inspired a young man of his talents with a passion so strong and disinterested. That he should have left the pursuit of a profession in which he was said to be rapidly rising, to bury himself in a disagreeable place like Fairport, and brood over an unrequited passion, might be ridiculed by others as romantic, but was naturally forgiven as an excess of affection by the person who was the object of his attachment. Had he possessed an independence, however moderate, or ascertained a clear and undisputed claim to the rank in society, he was well qualified to adorn. She might now have had it in her power to offer her father, during his misfortunes, an asylum and an establishment of her own. These thoughts, so favourable to the absent lover, crowded in, one after the other, with such a minute recapitulation of his words, looks, and actions, 
as plainly intimated that his former repulse had been dictated rather by duty than inclination. Isabella was musing alternately upon this subject, and upon that of her father's misfortunes, when, as the path winded round a little hillock, covered with brushwood, the old blue-gown suddenly met her. With an air as if he had something important and mysterious to communicate, he doffed his bonnet, and assumed the cautious step and voice of one who would not willingly be overheard. "'I have been wishing muckle to meet with your ladyship, for ye ken I dare not come to the house for Dousterswivel.' "'I heard indeed,' said Miss Wardour, dropping an alms into the bonnet, "'I heard that you had done a very foolish, if not a very bad thing, Eddie, and I was sorry to hear it.' "'What, my bonny lady, foolish! I the words, fools, and how should old Eddie Ochiltree be I wise? And I for the evil. Let them, why deal with Dousterswivel, tell whether he got to Grainmire than his deserts. That may be true, Eddie, and yet, said Miss Wardour, you may have been very wrong. Weird, weird, we's no dispute that I know. It's about yourself I'm going to speak. Do if you ken what's hanging over the house of Knockwinnock? Great distress, I fear, Eddie answered Miss Wardour, but I am surprised it is already so public. Public? Sweet clean the messenger will be there the day with I his tackle. I ken it for I know his concurrence, as they call them, that's warned to meet him, and they'll be about their work belie. Where they clip, their needs nigh came, they shear close enough. Are you sure this bad hour, Eddie, is so very near? Come, I know it will. It's e'en as I tell you, lady, but didn't be cast down. There's a heaven o'er your head there. As well as in that fearful night atween the body burgness and the hawket head. Do you think he, what rebuked the waters, could have protect you against the wrath of men, though they be armed with human authority? It is indeed all we have to trust to. You dinna ken, you dinna ken. When the night's darkest, the dawn's nearest. If I had a good horse, or could ride him when I had him, I reckon there would be help yet. I trusted I had gotten a cast with the royal Charlotte, but she's copied yonder, it's like at Kittleburg. There was a young gentleman on the box, and he behooved to drive, and Tom sang that so had high mare since. He behooved to let him, and the daft callant couldn't take the turn at the corner of the brig. Hide, hide. He took the curbstone, and he's womder as hide womel a tomb bicker. It was a luck I hadn't gotten on the topper. So I came down atween hope and despair to see if you would send me on. And Eddie, where would you go? said the young lady. To Tullenberg, Meddy, which was the first stage from Fairport, but a good deal nearer to Knockwinnock. And that without today. It's idle on your own business. Our business, Eddie. Alas, I give you all the credit for your good meaning, but— There's nine boats about it, my lady, for gang I'm on, said the persevering blue-gown. But what is it that you would do at Tannenberg, or how can you go in there benefit my father's affairs? Indeed, my sweet lady, said the gabberlunzi, you mind just trust that bit secret to Eddie's daddy's grey pow, and ask nine questions about it. Certainly, if— how would I word my life for ye yon night? 
I can hae nae reason to play an ill pliskitae in the day o' your distress. Well, Eddie, follow me then, said Miss Wardour. Now I will try to get you sent to Tannenberg. Make haste then, my bonny lady, make haste, for the love of goodness. And he continued to exhort her to expedition until they reached the castle. End chapter 20th